Good morning. Good morning, good morning. I'm glad to be with you today and to see your faces. And if you're here in the house or joining us online, we're so glad to be with you today. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And so I want to read just a few passages of scripture to that regard. So you can remain seated while I do that. Um, well, maybe partway through, I'll invite you to stand. But for now, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Some people are confused by this, so Peter decides to explain it. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy, and I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can I invite you to stand for this last part from the book of Ephesians? Where Paul says, And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Let's praise and glorify God together. Where I get so locked in on kind of a certain way of thinking when it comes to prayer, or I kind of get so myopic and just start praying about my needs and the needs of others and this and that problem, that I lose sight of the grand scope of prayer. This is why I love the Lord's Prayer. Because my needs and the needs of others give us this day our daily bread. It's just one fraction of this whole prayer that is about God's kingdom and God's character, his forgiveness, his guidance, his protection. It's just one piece of that. And as we turn to Acts chapter 12 today, we find the early church praying earnestly for Peter. And in this, there's kind of a mirror moment for us where we can kind of see if, like the early church, we've become a little too myopic or a little too zeroed in on just one part of prayer and be invited, I just kind of want to invite us all to kind of lift our eyes a little further back, zoom out a little bit, and get a bigger view of prayer. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 this morning. We're back in the book of Acts for the rest of the summer, and I'm really excited. Holden's going to be preaching a few times. Randy's going to be preaching at least once. Maybe Stephanie Tennant is going to be preaching. We just don't know yet. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. But it's been a few months since we've been in the book of Acts, and so I thought maybe it would be good to kind of review. You know, all of my favorite TV shows will go on break through the summer, and then next fall, for example, This Is Us will come back for the last season. We have just found out, in my heartbreak. Um, but you know, it starts out with, right, previously on This Is Us, right? So here you go, previously in the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts begins with Jesus sending his people into the world as missionaries and to help them in this endeavor. The Holy Spirit is given to empower Jesus' people to accomplish their mission and 
the Holy Spirit's presence sets them apart as holy space where people can encounter God. After a powerful sermon from Peter, the early church is formed. It meets in the temple. It meets at homes. They devote themselves to prayer and to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. And suddenly, as this church grows, there's some persecution that falls on them. But despite this persecution, the gospel spreads throughout Jerusalem and then into the nearby regions of Judea and Samaria. Everyone is gobsmacked, that's British for flabbergasted, for, to discover that God has planned to include non-Jews, to include Gentiles, in this covenant family. So Paul and Barnabas go and help build a multi-ethnic community in Antioch which will be the base of Paul's first missionary journey. We're going to look at how Paul leaves for his missionary journey next week. Right now, the gospel is poised. In Acts chapter 12, the gospel is poised to break out into the rest of the Mediterranean world. They're on the doorstep. But before it can, the early church has to learn a few vital things about prayer. Because prayer is what pivots us into mission. Prayer pivots us into mission. And so Acts chapter 12, look again with me at Acts 12 verses 1 through 4. Luke says, that time King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. Says NLT is nice. It says, had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. In other words, publicly beheaded. And when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. Herod Agrippa I, uh, Luke says he persecutes some believers. Luke literally says in the Greek that he laid violent hands on some. He laid violent hands on some. So James is beheaded publicly. This appeases the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And so Peter is taken into custody. And the plan is for Peter to go on public trial after the Passover. Uh, Craig Keener, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says, Agrippa I is the most dangerous and potentially lethal human oppressor of the church in Luke's narrative so far. The most dangerous and potentially lethal human oppressor. He lavished wealth on public entertainments, including an occasion where he publicly exterminated 1,400 criminals. Publicly executing James or Peter might appear to him to be a small matter. Confronted by the most dangerous and lethal human oppressor they've yet seen, the church has one response in verse 5. While Peter was in prison, they prayed earnestly for him, very earnestly for him. So look at verses 6 through 8. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. So imagine, here's Peter. He is chained to a guard on his right and a guard on his left, and then there's two other guards that are standing at the door. So Peter is guarded by four. Actually, what it says is that Herod ordered four units of four each. So every three, every six hours, I had to think about the math, every six hours a guard would change, right? So he's got four dudes on him. Peter is chained, and he's asleep. Verse 7, suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter, and the angel struck him on the side of the on the side to awaken him. Okay, evidently Peter was really sleeping. Uh, I'll make a joke about this later, but remember that show, Touched by an Angel, right? Evidently not struck by an angel, you know. But so the angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, "Quick, get up!" And the chains fell off his wrists. The angel told him, "Get dressed and put on your sandals," and he did. 
Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. There's a little bit of a, a nod to the book of Exodus where God's people were told that the Exodus was coming, that they would be set free from slavery. And that freedom was so imminent that they were told to be wearing their, they like slept in their coats and their sandals. They were told to be that ready. This is kind of a knock at Peter. Like Peter is not expecting in any way to be set free. So he's not ready to go. And he's so sleepy that the angel has to be like, okay, we're going to put on our shoes now, right? Now we're going to put on our coat. Now we're going to walk out of here. Uh, Peter is asleep. This, this whole passage, by the way, Acts 12 revolves on a series of ironies. So the irony is that while the church prays earnestly for Peter, they're having an all-night prayer meeting, Peter's just like napping, right? Uh, while the church expects Peter's deliverance, maybe, Peter isn't even dressed to go when the time of his exodus comes. In verses 9 through 11, there's more irony. Verse 9, so Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street, and then suddenly the angel left him. Verse 11, Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. Peter is being delivered, but he thinks it's just a vision. And at some point along the journey, as Peter leaves the prison, it's then he realizes that it's more than just a dream. This is really happening. But again, ironically, he walks through one open door only to find another door closed. Look at what happens in verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, watch this, verse 14. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. Peter's a wanted dude who's now just hanging out on this door, like knocking, hoping that like a guard doesn't walk by. And meanwhile, Rhoda, the servant girl, is so excited to see that it's Peter, she forgets to unlock the door and just goes running back to tell everybody, hey, Peter is standing at the door. Rhoda comes to see who's at the door. That's a common thing. Rhoda, by the way, is the only slave with a name in Luke or Acts. I wonder how she feels about being remembered in this way. Peter is at the door. He's knocking. He's hoping to enter the house. But sweet Rhoda, she's, she's so flabbergasted, she leaves the door. And everyone who's gathered is in deep prayer and deep worship. And Rhoda comes and says, hey, Peter's standing at the door. And they don't believe her. Poor Rhoda, they think. The stress has just gotten to her. She's hungry, we've been praying, we've been fasting, it's late, poor Rhoda. So they say to her in 1215, they say, you're out of your mind. When she insisted, they decided it just must be his angel, or ghost almost. The irony, Peter walks through the gate of the prison, the door is wide open, but the door he most needs to be open is closed to him. Peter is delivered by an angel, but those who have stayed up all night to pray believe that Peter is an angel. Rhoda is insisting, and among the commotion, they hear a sound. 
eventually they come back to their senses and they rush to the door and they, and they trip over themselves and their hands are shaking. They're jostling through the hallways and their clumsy fingers work the locks on the door and when it opens, there's Peter. Luke in verses 16 and 17 says, as Peter continued knocking, they finally opened the door and they saw him and they were amazed and he motioned for them to, t to quiet down. You know, if you're just escaped from prison, you don't want everyone to be hearing a shout, Peter! You know, <laughs> he motioned for them to quiet down and he told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he says, tell James and the other brothers, James, the brother of Jesus, tell James and the other brothers what has happened. And then he went to another place. The church is shocked to find that their prayers are answered. And I think this is encouraging because we tend to think that the early church always got it right. We tend to read the book of Acts and think this is, this is when the church was at its most pure. And there's a lot of good here. We tend to think if we could only just, I tend to think, if we could only just get back to the book of Acts, then everything, everything would be perfect. Listen, if the early church was so perfect, we wouldn't need Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and the letters to Titus and the letters to Timothy. We wouldn't need those letters. If everything was so perfect, we wouldn't have a New Testament. So clearly everything wasn't perfect. And here in Acts 12, we see the church shocked to find that their prayer has been answered. And it, it, it's almost like, Steph and I were talking about this last night. It's almost like what God has done is so beyond reason that they're flabbergasted. It's, you know, it says that they were praying very earnestly for him. What were they praying very earnestly for? Probably just that his life would be spared. Steph said, if I'm in that scenario, I'm mostly just praying that, you know, you get to live and one day be released perhaps in the normal legal way. She said, it would never occur to me to pray that God would release you miraculously from prison, right? And this is kind of how we pray, isn't it? When a friend of ours gets sick, we, we just pray that the doctors would do good work and they would be better. We don't pray, God, when they go to get that PET scan, would there just be no more cancer? I bring this up because we're, we're in good company this morning. If you, like me, kind of get too focused in on one aspect of prayer and in the midst of that kind of forget the larger things that God can do, we're in good company this morning. And it, and it makes me ask, what do we really believe about prayer? What do we really believe about prayer? I often hear Christians say something like, I believe in the power of prayer. Every once in a while, someone will share like a little picture on social media and it has like flowers and strange fonts and it says like, I believe in the power of prayer. Share if you believe in the power of prayer. I, I understand the sentiment. I understand that we're saying that God hears us and responds and moves. I understand the sentiment. I believe in the power of prayer. But all the same, I stand in front of you this morning, and here's what I say. I do not believe in the power of prayer. And neither should you. 
these Christians gather to pray for Peter's release, they didn't believe in the power of prayer either. Jesus taught his disciples to ask and seek and knock. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. But when the answer to their prayer is knocking back, they're shocked. They're amazed. They don't believe their eyes. And so I can't help but wonder if when we say things like, I believe in the power of prayer, we're saying it because deep down we know we don't believe in the power of prayer. And we're, we're trying to amp ourselves up. We're trying to convince ourselves that we pray for it. We're trying to fake it till we make it on prayer when deep down we don't believe in the power of prayer. So I stand before you this morning and say, you don't believe in the power of prayer. I don't believe in the power of prayer. And here's what's most important. The Bible doesn't tell you to believe in the power of prayer. It does tell you to believe in the power of God. Prayer is not any, has no power in and of itself. Prayer is a means of communication. Prayer kind of reminds me of um, the cord that I use to charge my phone. It has no power unless it is plugged in. Do you see what I'm saying? Prayer of its own has no power, but God, who is a good father, who is a mighty savior, is all-powerful. And prayer connects us to him. The Bible tells us that God hears his people praying and responds. The Bible tells us that, the, that prayer does more than just change us. It changes things around us. The Bible tells us that God is pleased to partner with his people through prayer and to do mighty works and signs and wonders. In Acts 12, it was God in response to the church's earnest prayer that set Peter free. It wasn't prayer that set Peter free. It was the Lord. I believe that God hears us and draws near to us when we pray and partners with us to do far more than we could ask or imagine. And that subtle shift is vital to the life of prayer. The shift from I believe in the power of prayer to I believe in the power of God who responds to me in prayer, it's vital. And by the way, if you're unsure of God's power, look at how this story ends in verses 18 through 23. At dawn, there was great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. And when he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left, left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Verse 20. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. And when the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes and sat on his throne and made a speech to them. And the people gave him a great ovation, shouting, It's the voice of a god, not of a man. And instantly the angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness. As he, as he accepted the people's worship and instead of giving the glory to God, and so he was consumed with worms and died. Kings and kingdoms 
shall all pass away. This story is not Peter the good guy versus Herod the bad guy. It's Herod the bad guy versus God the good guy. The Lord is the hero of the story. Here's Herod struck by an angel. Just as Peter was struck by an angel, an angel strikes Peter on the side and leads him to freedom. An angel strikes Herod with sickness and leads him to death. So here's Herod Agrippa puffing himself up, taking the praise that belongs to God and receiving it to himself, proudly beheading James, arrogantly oppressing God's people. And with a single strike, Agrippa meets his end. And despite death and prison, the gospel goes forth. Verses 24 and 25 say, Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. The word of God will be unhindered. The people of God will continue to multiply. Jesus said, I will build my church, and there is no ruler on earth or in the heavenly places who can stop the Lord. There is no purpose of God's that can be thwarted. Herod sets himself up as the antagonist in the story and God pushes him down. Which, by the way, where does that leave us? The helpless people in need of saving. And so God swoops in. But what I want you to hear this morning is that you are not called to believe in the power of prayer. Scripture does not ask you to believe in the power of prayer. Scripture asks you to believe in God who holds all power. And prayer connects us to this God. Prayer is a means of connection. And while you could say that prayer is the sum total of our life with God, prayer has no power of its own. It does connect us to the one who is powerful. And I think it's because we have so zoomed in on the puzzle piece of, puzzle piece of our personal needs and anxieties that we then have to ramp ourselves up to believe that we believe in the power of prayer and that we have some sort of power in prayer because we're trying to attack that. But what I want us to do today is get our eyes off of the puzzle piece and onto the whole picture. I want our eyes to see the whole picture of what God is doing and why has he gifted us prayer and, and why does he want to do that? And yes, he wants to meet our needs. And yes, he wants to bless others around us with healing and his presence of healing of mind and healing of body and provision and all of these things he does, but he is also doing so much more. And prayer is also the tool that connects us with that so much more. One pastor says, probably the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. Our field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go, bear fruit. He handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters. And he said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. 
Probably the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. As we think about going out on mission, just as the early church was about to do, prayer is the pivot that gets us there. As we think about personal proclamation and demonstration to our friends that don't know Jesus, to our neighbors, to our networks, when we think about these things, prayer is the pivot that gets us there. And it's the reason prayer does it is not because prayer in itself is so powerful, but it connects us to God. And so how do we press in here? How do we... How do we press into prayer? And not just prayer, how do we press into God? Right? How do we lean in? How do we lean in to this powerful God and and grow in that communication with him? It's important that we see prayer as a posture, as a pattern, and as a practice. As a posture, as a pattern, and as a practice. Prayer certainly is something that we do, but it is also a posture in which we live. Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind. He says something similar in Ephesians 6. He says, stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Jesus teaches us to persist in prayer. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, he says in Luke 11. Prayer is a posture then of alertness and perseverance. And if the early church failed, it seems they failed in alertness. Oh, they persevered. They prayed most of the night, it seems. But they weren't alert to what God could do. Peter, by the way, wasn't alert either. He was sleeping. They weren't alert to the God who hears and answers, and so they're just shocked to see what that Peter has been set free. I think another mistake that we make in prayer is a lack of perseverance. So we pray once, and we throw up our hands when nothing happens about it. But Jesus says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. There's a perseverance that is required in prayer. I'm trying to pray with perseverance about having a passion for lost people. I don't want to intellectually know that's important or aspire to that. I want to have a passion that kind of comes out of me. So I'm persevering in that, and quite imperfectly, by the way. Prayer is a posture. Prayer is a pattern. So as the early church devoted themselves to prayer, the church gathered in homes to pray. One imagines that there was a regular pattern of prayer. There was for Jews to pray at certain set hours throughout the day. By the time of the Benedictine monks, it becomes kind of codified to pray in the morning and mid, early morning and mid-morning and noon in the middle of the afternoon and at evening. So there's this monastic kind of pattern of prayer. Whatever it is, we need a pattern of prayer because without a pattern of prayer, we actually don't pray. A simple pattern of prayer, by the way, is when someone says to you, hey, would you be praying about this, that you stop and pray for them right there. Right? Because if you're anything like me, if I don't stop and pray for that person right there, I probably won't. Right? Um, Another pattern for prayer is deciding it's going to be first thing in the morning or right before bed or in the middle of the day or at some point. Having a pattern for prayer kind of puts meat on the bones of the posture of prayer. But of course, prayer is also a practice. There is a practice 
to leaning into God, and it, and it takes practice. So there's Melissa Weaver. I didn't tell her I was going to talk about this. Uh, Melissa Weaver is on staff at Summit Academy that we've all had a relationship with, and they had their graduation in this space on Wednesday afternoon. And Melissa has done the opening prayer, the invocation, every year I've done that. And uh, every year, Melissa would pre-write a prayer and get up and pray it. And this year, she did something she'd never done before. She just went off the cuff. And it was beautiful. Yes. So prayer, though, it, that took practice, right? It takes practice to kind of find our way to that kind of practice of prayer and that kind of leaning into God, which is why, by the way, this summer is the summer focus of prayer, right? We're going to have prayer-focused Bible reading plans and take-home prayer guides, and we're running two groups called the Prayer Course. One starts on Wednesday nights in June, one starts on Thursday nights in July, and here's the scary thing about this group. It's not just learning neat facts about prayer, you actually pray. Oh, shoot right? Right? Because Jesus says, teach them to obey all of the things. The early church prayed very earnestly for him. For us to go out on mission, for us to bear the fruit that Jesus has called us to bear, we're going to learn to pray. So Steph, why don't you kind of come and lead us in that this morning? So the reason that we do response time each week is we don't just want to hear the word of God, but we want to respond to what he's saying to us. And I was, as I was listening to the sermon and, and thinking about um, what Kyle was saying, kind of about that power that we experience when we're connected to God through prayer, I was thinking of a book that Jack has that's called The God Contest, and it's about um, the prophet Elijah and Mount Carmel and how the prophets of Baal are praying to their God and nothing happens. And then Elijah prays to Yahweh, to the true God, and fire falls from, from the sky and burns, burns the altar. And I was thinking um, that maybe if you're not experiencing the power of prayer, um, who are you praying to? Who, where is your trust? And so that's my first question, my first invitation is, um, is your trust in the way that you pray? Is, the, is your trust in where you pray? Um, who is your trust in? Who are you praying to? And so that's the first question that I just want to kind of ask us this morning to kind of be focusing on. And then um, the second question I want to um, ask is, where is God inviting you to press into knowing him more through prayer? So um, whether that's the prayer course, whether that's maybe committing to doing the prayer guides this summer. Um, there's also a women's prayer group that meets um, on Thursdays at 1 um, how is the Father inviting you to, to press into knowing him more through prayer? So we're going to just take a minute. Um, Julia is going to pray for us, um, and then we'll continue on into communion. Correct. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
Father, we confess this morning that um, prayer is hard and that it's difficult to persevere in praying for those things that uh, we feel so burdened by but feel honestly so hopeless to us. Father, we confess that we don't have patterns of prayer because we are busy or there's other things on our phone to look at or other things to think about, to-do lists to write. Father, um, we confess that sometimes our faith isn't in you, but it's in um, doctors or in um, authorities or other, other people. And so, Father, we pray that you would increase our faith today. We pray that you would increase our trust in you. Father, I pray that we would view prayer as a way to connect with and to know you and to be in relationship with you. Father, I pray over our entire spiritual family this this summer that we would grow in communicating with you and hearing your voice and doing what you say and also in seeking you in prayer. Father, I pray for those who feel inadequate or nervous or embarrassed when the thought of praying comes up. I pray that you would give them the courage this summer to take one next step, to try one new thing to get to know you a little better, to see you more at work in their lives. And Father, we know and trust that you will be faithful to meet us when we take that step. So I just pray your encouragement and your strength and your courage over them today. Prayer is a gift that we are given and it connects us to God. And it's a gift that we can take up and it's a gift that we can lay hold of because Jesus has made a way for us. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus give us access to God. And so now we can boldly go before him with confidence as his dear children. God is eager to connect with us and to know us and to hear our voices. He's eager to respond to us. And it's this meal, this bread broken, this cup poured out for us that makes it all possible. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he offered it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And that same night also he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, this new relationship that I've made possible through the pouring out of my blood. He invites us to come. And so we will. Uh, Someone, two people will be here and you can come forward. They'll hand you some elements and you can go back to your seat and take them when you're ready. You can come forward whenever we have gluten-free options. We, here's why we hand it to you, because grace isn't taken, it's, it's a given. It's a given. Taste and see that the Lord is good together. I, I just need two people to help me serve communion this morning. Jill is one. Sydney and I. Great. Steph will move to you if you don't want to move to her, so she'll come find you. 
Father, we pray that you would pour out your gifts, your, the gift of your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and cup. That in eating and drinking of them, we might be refreshed and reminded of your nearness to us and our access to you. And that we get to call this powerful God, Father. So come Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The table is open. you stand with us if you're able as we close. I was thinking about that line, like, do your friends despise or, like, forsake thee? First of all, you need new friends, if that's the case. And I'll be your friend. <laughs> Yikes. Um, this is Hebrews 4. Since, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same things we do, but he didn't sin. So let us boldly come to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. You're loved. We'll see you next week. Grace and peace.